blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room, and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would bless the reading of Your Word, that You would teach us Your people. I pray that You would help us to grow as a congregation through Your Word for the sake of Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. As is often the case on Sunday evenings, I've got way too much material and a lot of Scripture that I want to read together, and so I'm going to move sort of quickly. To recap, we're considering the parts of worship. All of them are rooted in the use and application of God's Word amongst the people of God. We've seen the Scripture, specifically, reading, preaching, hearing. We've seen song, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We've seen the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Now this evening we move to what are called special occasions. Special occasions. The confession reads this way, Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in an holy and religious manner. When we started this section, I explained this concept of special occasions this way and and trying to, to root it in God's Word. I said these are times when we give priority to the Word of God and thus God Himself to intervene into our normal routine. So how, how, does, how does the Word of God fit into or give rise to these special occasions? The Word of God intervenes into our normal routine. Now, to explain that idea, I want to consider two things. First, how the Word of God works. And then secondly, what is our normal routine? So first, how does the Word of God work to prescribe for us a particular duty. How, how does the Word of God work? And there are some options. I came up with two, I think, that could summarize overarching thinking on this matter. The first option, this is how God's Word works. Straightforward, didactic instruction and prohibition only. In other words, chapter and verse theology. Chapter and verse approach. This is what... Some would call biblicism. This idea demands that the Bible be what it is not. The Bible is not simply a catalog, a list of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, do this, do this. As we've been reading, the Bible is full of narratives, full of poetry, full of wisdom. It also has commands and 
all, all, all types of genres of Scripture, but there are some people who say, for the Word of God to tell me what to do, I need you to show me in the words where it says exactly in those words the command or the prohibition. That's one way that some people might think the Word of God works. But the second option, which I think is more biblical, is through, the second way the Word of God works is through precept, prohibition, and precedent. That's a second option. Precept, prohibition, and precedent. Precept would be a clear command. Do this. Prohibition, a clear prohibition. Don't do this. But then there's precedent, which would be a real example or a parable, maybe positive, maybe negative, but it conveys a moral principle that we, we can tell from the Scriptures that principle ought to be followed. Even though it doesn't say, do this, we, can, we see God's approval or disapproval on a particular action. So the answer, my answer to how does the Word of God prescribe for us a duty, my answer would be through precept, prohibition, and precedent. Sometimes we do have clear commands and prohibitions. That's very easy. Other times we have precedents that are set forth by example. While discerning principles of conduct from precedents requires a little more work and may not always be as straightforward and clear to everyone, those principles, if they are deduced properly, would still be described or, or labeled the Word of God. This is what God's Word says. And this would fall under the statement that we saw in chapter 1 of our confession. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down, chapter and verse, or necessarily contained. In other words, I don't have a, a, a direct command or prohibition, but if I take this over here and this over here and this narrative and I put them all together, I can see this is what God would have us to do. So someone might say, well, show me a chapter and verse in the Bible where it says that I can't buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't show me that from the Scriptures. Well, we would say, well, I, there's not a text that says that, but... If I go to Acts chapter 8 and I see the, the narrative of Simon Magus who says, let me buy this gift, and they say, let your money perish with you, I can discern God doesn't allow us to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a principle that I can deduce from that precedent. And this is how the Word of God works for the believer. Precedents allow us to deduce principles which then help to establish precepts and prohibitions in areas where there is not a clear precept or prohibition. And so I'm arguing that what the confession is implying here is that there are times when the Word of God working this way intervenes into our normal routine. It inserts a precept, a prohibition, or a precedent, an example, a narrative, an illustration, which alters our normal course of life. We see from the Word of God the normal routine must change at this point. So then that leads to the next question, what is our normal routine? Or what do I mean by that? And, and simply put, I would say the six-in-one pattern that's established at creation. That's, that's our general overarching routine. The principle behind that pattern is that God owns your time, that God will dictate how your time is to be used. And the pattern is we work six days, 
and we rest from our labors to worship one day. We call that Sabbatarianism. We, we also would, could say we subscribe to the abiding validity of the creation pattern or the abiding validity of the fourth commandment. Six in one, that's our normal routine. Now as with all of God's precepts, prohibitions, and precedents, we do have a tendency to distort them into extremes. With the Sabbath command to work six days and worship on one day, men have generally fallen into two erroneous categories or erroneous camps. The first would be to legislate away any and all exceptions. The second would be to legislate based on exceptions or according to exceptions. Legislating away any and all exceptions. This was the error of the Pharisees. For them, there was no room for anything that even remotely resembled working on the Sabbath. They legislated away all so-called exceptions. In our day, men might say, well, God says work six days and rest one day. So any vacation is sinful because God said six and one. Having a Saturday off from work, well, that's a sin because God said work six days and work and rest one. Going to see mom on Mother's Day is sinful because God said work six days and rest one. Staying home from church because you're sick, well, that's sinful because God said work six days and rest one. You see how we, we legislate away all exceptions. There's no exception. It's six and one and that's it. That's one error. That would be the Biblicism error. Or men might say, well, God says work six days and rest for worship one day. Therefore, the church, church work, church ministry, and the God-appointed leaders in the church have zero sway and influence in my life apart from that one day. God, you get one day, and over my dead body will you get any more. It's six and one. You set the pattern, not me. Don't ask for any more time. That would be another way that men, we might legislate away any and all exceptions. The other side would be to legislate according to exceptions. One of the most readily available notions is the idea of necessity and mercy. We confess and believe, and the Bible puts this forth, that acts of necessity and mercy are legitimate uses and practices on the Christian Sabbath. But somebody might say, well, since that's the case, my job is that of a doctor a nurse, an EMS worker, a fireman, a policeman, etc. Well, in that case, then I, of all people, am at liberty to work my regular job any and every Lord's Day because the, my life is necessity and mercy and I'm under no obligation to attend corporate worship because my Sabbath observance is spent in acts of necessity and mercy. Along that line of thinking, then the gas station could, worker could say, well, you know the policeman, they got to have their gas... Then the truck driver could say, well, you know those gas stations, they got to have their fuel. You just trace it on the down the line. We can eventually make exceptions for everything because, well, the, the wheels of the, the world must keep turning. It's, it's, it's necessary. And we can legislate according to those exceptions. Now, both of these are wrong, obviously. God's law was not given to us in order that we might add to it and legislate away all exceptions, or that we legislate according to the exceptions. You know, the ox is stuck in the donkey. Well, I'm going to you know, start a business, the, the, or the ox is stuck in a ditch. 
I'm, I'm going to start a business that's the ox in the ditch business. And really all I do is sit by you know, my, my shed with my, my, my team of, of mules and I just wait for the phone call and whenever the, the ox is stuck, then I'll, I'll go help them pull them out. You, you see that? That's an exception. You don't legislate based on the exception. You prepare for the exception, but you don't legislate that way. Now, the question is then how do we find a balance? And this is where precept, prohibition, and precedent all work together to form a full-orbed understanding of what God expects. When we put all three of these together, we learn from the Word of God that there are times when God might break into that normal routine of six and one by acts of special providence. And it is incumbent upon the people of God themselves to break off the normal routine of six and one to acknowledge that God has intervened in the pattern of six and one. Remember, the six and one pattern was set by God, and we join Him in His pattern. And so there might be times when God interrupts that pattern, and we as His people continue to follow, not legislating new precepts, but following what God is clearly doing in providence. Now, what are these kinds of special providential interruptions? I'd say there are negative interruptions and there are positive interruptions. Negative interruptions would be through conviction or judgment. God manifests His displeasure in sin in a very special and clear way. The positive providential interruptions are often through abnormal blessing where God pours out a special manifestation of His love. Now what do the people of God do in these circumstances when God clearly intervenes in conviction or judgment or in exceptional blessing? What do the people of God do? Do we ignore it? No. We participate in solemn humiliation with fastings or thanksgivings. And we deduce that, those two answers from precept, and precedent. In other words, we can look to the Word of God and see examples of this, and we learn that there is an overarching principle that the people of God have always followed. Again, our confession. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgiving upon special occasions, not all occasions, special occasions, ought to be used in a an holy and religious manner. So first we have solemn humiliation with fastings. This would be the response of the people of God to what we might call the negative providences where God, through conviction of sin or even open judgment, manifests His displeasure in sin in a way that is abnormal. So what is solemn humiliation with fastings? Well, here's, here's some help from Noah Webster. Solemn means religiously grave, religiously serious, devout, marked by reverence to God, affected with seriousness, gravity, or reverence. It could also be, uh, could also be synonymous with sacred. Humiliation is to actively bring oneself low or to abase yourself. And fasting, obviously, is abstaining from food for a period of time. So solemn humiliation with fastings would be a time of sacred, serious self-abasement accompanied with abstaining from food. 
Now keep in mind that we're talking primarily about corporate worship and the local church. And so what's being described here is a corporate time of sacred, serious, corporate debasement accompanied by corporate abstaining from food. And this would be on special occasions, and it ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Now somebody might respond, tell me where the Bible commands corporate, solemn humiliation and fastings. Chapter and verse, please. Well, again, the way that we learn this is through precedent. From precedent set down, we can deduce principles, precepts, and prohibitions. Logically, because this is a matter of special providence and special occasions and would be subjective based on every local church around the globe, it would actually be impractical and unwise for God to have set this sort of thing down in clear precept or prohibition. So He gives it to us in the form of precedent so that we can deduce the principles and make right judgments. Because we can read our Bibles and see the people of God setting down a precedent, and then God responding and blessing that precedent, we can say, that seems like something God might have His people to be doing on some occasions. When we come to the Scriptures, the language that's used here that we read from Joel, and and the church historically has used the language of a solemn assembly. That language is not always used, but that's generally the overarching idea. The solemn assembly. I want to read you some examples here, and I I got these. I'm indebted to a a short paper by Richard Owen Roberts entitled The Solemn Assembly. He actually wrote a book on the subject that is really hard to come by, but these are just, I basically just took these examples from his paper, and I'll just run through them very quickly. First, the revival under Samuel. We've been reading in 1 Samuel following some of those events, the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant, and then the returning of the Ark of the Covenant, and those types of things. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Notice that. Samuel said, gather all Israel. So they gathered. They came. The second one, the revival under King Asa. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, King Asa gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. There they gathered, or they were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of King Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, would be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought Him with their whole desire, and He was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. If you trace out the story, they they put away the idols and they sought God's face. They gathered on a day not prescribed in the law. A special day. They offered sacrifices, 
not prescribed by the law, not, not the normal daily routine sacrifices or the, the yearly or monthly, no, special sacrifices on that day and the Lord was found. The revival under Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. He proclaimed it, they came. And as we read the revival under Joel, God in, in, in the prophet, there, His judgment has come upon the nation through a, a swarm of locusts, unlike anything they had ever seen, a plague of locusts. And in response, the prophet declares, and this time I'll read beginning at verse 12 of Joel chapter 2, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Notice, no one is excluded from this assembly. Even newlyweds were expected to forego their honeymoon. Come on out. Solemn assembly time. How startling is that, that, these, that this was an expectation amongst the people of God. Well, we just got married, so we're going to be... Actually, we've got reservations, we've got big plans, we've dropped a lot of money on this honeymoon. You're expected to be at the solemn assembly. In all these instances, and there are others, I just grabbed a few from his paper... The Lord answered His people with blessings. And He put His stamp of approval on what they did. Now, we can't legislate according to these examples. Well, okay, here's the rule. We'll put in our confession. If there's ever a plague of locusts, then we'll have a solemn... No, that's not what we do. We glean principles. God put His stamp of approval. And notice that in none of these instances, and, and all of the others... They never did less than what was the normal routine. They always did more. They added something to what was already prescribed. They went above and beyond. Now somebody might say, well, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. To which I would respond first, 1 Corinthians 10.11. These things were written down for our instruction. Not our information, not our pondering, not for us to muse upon what it must have been like, but for our instruction, to instruct us on how to live, to instruct us in the way that we should go. Also, I'd say, what have we learned recently? The nation of Israel was a typological holy kingdom, a shadow which pointed to the eschatological holy kingdom, which is the church of Jesus Christ. If anybody ought to take principles from this precedent, it would be the people of God. Who else is going to do it? It's the church. And so, it should not surprise us to see New Testament examples of very similar things. In some of these examples, I will admit, it's kind of hard to nail down every detail of the facts. 
Not all of them we would call solemn assemblies, but we can see some principles by which the apostles governed the early churches. The apostles had the authority of Christ. What they did, what their, their practice was, that was setting the precedent for the New Testament church. So we see, and these are all in the book of Acts, when it came to the appointing of deacons. Acts chapter 6. Verses 2-6, through six, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This was not a worship service. They had a, they had a problem. The widows are not being fed. So, alright, well, call everybody together. Well, it's not Sunday. No, call everybody together. We've got church matters that have to be dealt with. They gathered them. The whole gathering came together. They gathered... Get, get this, extracurricularly, that's a $2 word, they gathered, it seems, extracurricularly for the sole purpose of appointing deacons. The need was urgent, and so they acted. Secondly, prayer for imprisoned preachers. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 12 Speaking of Peter, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Again, this was not their normal worship service. This was a separate time of prayer specifically for their imprisoned brother. We need to pray. He's imprisoned. And they gathered for prayer. Preparing to send out men. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, again, it seems, I can't say this as inerrant or infallible, but it seems when it says that they were worshiping in the Lord and fasting, that more than likely they were worshiping and fasting for this purpose. And the Holy Spirit answers. He speaks. Fasting, fasting is not something you do just by itself. Fasting is, is, a, is an aid to prayer. It is a help to prayer and calling out to God. So when we say worship and fasting, the idea is they were praying for something and the Holy Spirit said, He spoke, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And then what did they do? They fasted and prayed before sending them out. So it seems like they might have been gathered for that very purpose. It may even be describing uh, an extended period of time where they had been fasting, been worshiping, and been seeking the Lord. When it came to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. They had everybody together to choose men from among them 
and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The whole church was gathered to choose men to carry the decision of the Jerusalem council to these other churches. They, they all pitched in. The church would do this when it came to sending out men. The fourth one, missionary report back time. That's what we used to call it growing up, report back time. In Acts 14.27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now notice the language. It seems that the gathering of the church was based on when they arrived. When they arrived and had gathered the church, not when they arrived and got settled down and then they waited for the next worship service. It seems like the gathering was specifically to hear what is God doing amongst the Gentiles? We want to know. We fasted. We prayed. We sent you out. Now you've come back. Tell us what, what's happening. And they did that. Number five, the reception of apostolic standards. Again, after the, the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15.30, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. In other words, they gathered the congregation of the church for the specific purpose of hearing what the decision was, was from the Jerusalem council. Again, not all of these would fit the bill of, a, a, of solemn humiliation or a solemn assembly, but the idea remains that there was a special occasion requiring a special gathering of the people of God for something. It was not normal but there were these times. Again, we might question, meander through some of these examples if we'd like, and we say, well, I don't really think that, that counts, and I don't really think that counts. But one thing I believe is certain if you read the book of Acts is that these early Christians and these early churches had their schedule bound up in the life and the ministry of the local church because they understood that the local church is the ministry of Christ on the earth. This was their life. They were Christ people. They were kingdom citizens. This was their life. It was not a club for them. Well, tell me, tell me when, do, when, when, does, when do you have your meetings? Okay, I'll be there and I'm not going to give any more time than that. No, it was a holy congregation. And all of the members took very seriously everything that was happening. To tending to widows, appointing deacons, sending out preachers, getting together to hear back from those preachers. This was all important to them. They recognized... This is who we are now. We have a new king. We are a part of a new kingdom. We are saturated in, in all of life with what's happening in this kingdom. And I will point out that in these New Testament examples, it's not the nation that gathers. It's the church. Remember, the church local is the antitype of Israel. And... It's not the nation who was blessed in response to these activities. It was the church. The kingdom of Christ advanced. If you read the, those passages, the Word of God continued to go forth. The church was strengthened. The opposite of that would be, as we saw in Revelation 2 and 3, Christ delivers words of warning. And if any church fails to heed His warnings, He threatens to come in judgment and re remove the lampstand of that church, not destroy the nation, Asia Minor was already vile and wicked. It was plagued with idolatry and paganism. It was the church who stood to be immediately judged by Christ. Judgment begins at the household of God. It's the people of God who are, who are trafficking in this, 
these providences, these warnings, these revelations of God. The church is purified and cleansed now that we might be saved in the day of judgment. But the world remains under the wrath of God, storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. God intervenes. The church responds. God pours out blessings upon the church and her ministry. Now, how would we apply this? If we confess that solemn humiliation with fastings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner, we all believe that, then what do we do? There are principles I think we can glean. And this is not exhaustive. Again, a lot of this stuff is, is sort of a, a, um, based on the occasion and, and circumstances. But several things I think we can glean. These special assemblies vary in their level of solemnity based on the circumstances. Sometimes God's hand of judgment is clear. 1 Corinthians 11. Some have gotten sick and some have died. Judgment has come. You, you need to act. You need to do something. Sometimes God will allow a, a public sin or, or a great sin to be manifest. Although He's not brought judgment to the congregation yet, but He's allowed it to come to the surface. 1 Corinthians 5. Deal with it. You, I'm going to give you an opportunity to deal with it. And there, he, what does He say? Ought you not rather to mourn? To me, I would say, we need to get together and have some mourning. We need to have some, some serious considerations as to why we are uh, rejoicing and, and, and arrogant over public sin. Sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes there's a felt absence of God's presence. And so we don't get together to confess sin. We get together to search, to ask God to show us our sins. Sometimes there is an urgent need that needs prayer. Sometimes there's a desire, but not necessarily a need. You want to send out men. Well, that's not, a, not an urgent need for the moment, but you might begin to pray and to that end, sometimes there's just important information that needs to be given out with regard to the kingdom. Every circumstance will dictate the level of urgency, solemnity, and activity. Again, we don't legislate based on the precedent alone, but we can glean principles. And the, that, that solemnity will vary. Secondly, solemn humiliations may or may not be accompanied by fastings. In the Old Testament example, sometimes fasting was mentioned, sometimes it wasn't. In the New Testament, sometimes there was fasting, sometimes there wasn't. Again, it depends on the severity of the situation. And that, that requires some wisdom. That requires some consideration of what's happening. Sometimes a special meeting isn't required. Sometimes there is. Again, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, the next time you get together. He doesn't say, as soon as you get this letter, have a meeting. He says, no, the next time you get together, make this decision. Now, I'll, I'll supplement all of that with Richard Owen Roberts. He sticks with those Old Testament examples, and he lists ten practical suggestions for solemn assemblies. Number one, normal work is to be set aside. All work must be subjugated to spiritual concerns. Number two, the entire congregation is to be present. Number three, it is a time of fasting. Number four, it is a time of sacrifice. For us, that would often mean the sacrificing of our time and prayers. Number five, he says, it is to be of protracted duration. And I love this quote. If you don't know who Richard Owen Roberts is, look him up and listen to him. It makes quotes like this all the better. He says, no solemn assembly would be worth the name that did not allow at least an entire day 
for the great tasks of humiliation, prayer, repentance, and seeking God's face. Number six, it's a season of earnest prayer. Seven, it's a mandatory occasion for corporate repentance. Eight, an opportunity for spirit-anointed preaching of searching truths of the Word of God depending on the, the issue at hand. Number nine, it's an opportunity for, parent, for children to see parents demonstrating Christianity at its deepest corporate levels. It's one thing to say, well, yeah, my parents go to church. We've always went to church. And my parents would get together on odd days and we would sit all day in fasting and prayer seeking the face of God. That's real Christianity. That's real seeking of God's face. That's deep spiritual work. And number ten, it's an opportunity for God to speak in a special way. Why? Because it's a special occasion. On what occasions might the local church engage in a solemn assembly or one of these special gatherings? Again, a clear judgment from God, revelation of some corporate sin, earnest prayer might need to be made for imprisonment, someone's deathly sick. There might be some imminent danger coming upon the church. We, we, we hear news. There, the, uh, the war has broken out. Such and such a nation has breached our borders. They're coming in. Well, that might be a time to gather together to pray. Prayer and fasting to raise up men to be sent out. Prayer and fasting for appointing officers in the church. Gathering to hear from a missionary of God's work among the nations. There could be many more. You could put it this way. Strange providence may require strange practice. It's not normal. It's abnormal. All of this assumes that every individual member of the congregation takes up the burden of membership and responsibility to give themselves their time, their prayers for the work and needs of the church. In other words, this, this assumes we're all bought in. We're not just here to play. We're here for real. We're here to do business with God. Then secondly, there are thanksgivings, and this is much shorter. Thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Obviously, this would be a special time of gathering the church for the specific purpose of expressing corporate gratitude to God. Perhaps we gathered together to pray for a specific thing. God answers that prayer. Then we get together. We say, well, let's get together again. If we could get together to seek His face, can we not get together to offer thanksgiving? Examples of this, the revival under Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29. There they gathered, they offered sacrifices, they sang in worship, they brought thank offerings. Again, all of them sacrifices not prescribed in the normal routine. They were thankful for God's mercy, thankful for God's King, restored worship, thankful for provisions for their sacrifices. Another example would be that of Esther. Now, our confession, if you have one with references, points to Esther chapter 4, where she proclaimed a fast, three days and three nights, to pray. When God answered the prayer and delivered the people, what did they do? They instituted two feasts of Purim, days of thanksgiving, because God had answered and delivered His people. We, we might see Thanksgiving Day as an example of this. Perhaps our nation doesn't use it that way, but hey, most of us get Thursday and Friday off work on that week. Why not take a day and use it to give thanks to God? We might also set aside days, perhaps not as annual traditions, but gather together, pray, and tell God thank you for what He's done. We prayed for this. God answered, hey, so-and-so, get the grill, bring it. Saturday, 
Somebody buy the meat. Somebody buy some buns. We're having a festival of thanksgiving. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to sing. We're going to open the Word. We're going to give thanks. We're going to rejoice in what God has done. That's just an example. But again, we have these precedents set down. We can deduce principles. But again, it seems that the overarching principle is that the people of God let their calendar and schedule reflect the God who very often intervenes in providence and may sometimes interrupt our normal routine. We reflect that. We would be utterly foolish to see God's hand at work in judgment or in blessing in some mighty way and proceed with business as usual as if nothing had happened. That's practical atheism. God's doing things. Well, we, this is what i got going on. I'm sorry, I'm just busy. In conclusion, just some, some thoughts. Because I, I realize that a lot of this is very foreign to most of our experience with Christianity and with the church. Number one, can you imagine a corporate unity that would compel you to this? That if, that, if, that if a solemn assembly was called, you felt obligated, i got to do it. Our church is doing this. I'm there. Our culture is so individualized. We live in a nation where every man does what's right in his own eyes. He determines his own schedule. He determines his own laws. But the people of God have always been a corporate entity. And they've acted according to these providences corporately, responded to the providences of God corporately. Can you even imagine that? It's hard to imagine. Secondly, can you imagine a submission to the rule of the elders in a church which would bind your conscience to such activities? Can you imagine that? Again, not bind your conscience to the elders as if they were God. Remember, we've already talked about liberty of conscience. But to bind your conscience to God, to submit to them as His servants. The Old Testament saints didn't, wouldn't have questioned this idea. The church historically has not questioned this idea. The earliest churches of this nation assumed this. Now we have to be careful. To be fair, many pastors are nothing more than what Ian Paisley would call pulpit ornaments. They're just there to do their job two times on Sunday. Go up there, and, and, and that's how they carry out their labor and their office. The flip side of that is, there are a lot of churches who don't want anything more than a pulpit ornament. Up there's your box, sir. You stand up there. At this time, you talk. When it's this time, you stop so that we can go eat. And no further. That's your job. That's what they want is a, a pulpit ornament. It's amazing the number of people who would like to get back to, to the so-called old paths or, or get back to the early church model or even go back to the early days of this nation who wouldn't understand this. They would, they would laugh at this. In recent days, you see people, uh, and, and this is good, reminding uh, of the, the story of what we call the Black Robe Regiment. Man, can you imagine? The pastors, they led the people into war. And we like that idea. But they would scoff and stutter if their pastor said, I'm proclaiming a solemn assembly. And I expect that next Friday, all of us will gather here in this place at 8 a.m. And we'll spend our day in this room praying 
reading the Word, preaching the Word until dark or until God makes manifest what are the corporate sins of this congregation. And I don't think we'll leave until we have a list of them that we can begin to confess to God and repent. People would laugh at that. We dream of this idea of following pastors into battle with muskets, but very few would follow their pastors into spiritual warfare through solemn humiliation with fastings. But this is the way the church has been for a long time. It's only in recent generations that we've lost this. Thirdly, can you imagine a sensitivity to God's special providences like this? And this might be the most important thing. Just being aware of what God is doing. The saints of God and their leaders have always been sensitive to God's working and their own needs so that when they needed to make changes in their normal routine to comport with God's actions, they were able to do so and ready to do so. God's acting. We must respond. Most of us, for most of us, our normal, weekly, and or daily routine, wake up time, work time, meal time, kids nap time, supper time, bedtime, that's the most protected thing in our lives. We'll, we'll bleed and die for that. Now that could be good. You've got a schedule. That's good. You're, you're, you're a principled person. Or it could be idolatry. My time! Not yours. I gave you yours Sunday. This is mine. That's the way many people think. The way that we find out if it's idolatry is when God Almighty begins to move heaven and earth to judge or to bless, and you don't have the decency to alter your schedule to even acknowledge it. That's the problem. Can we even imagine being sensitive to God in this way? As we'll see in the weeks to come, God owns your time. God owns it. You can... Give it, you can hold it in a loose hand, or He will take it. But He will get your attention and He will get your allegiance some way or another. As He has said, among those who are near Me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Let's pray.